You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at, first, a new piece of research in the scientific journal Nature Sustainability, which examines the joyful prospect of collapsing ecosystems. Second, and finally, we turn to another listener question. What are the alternative models to economic growth, and how can we get there? Just a quick note before we begin today's show. I wanted to start off by thanking the wonderful Grace Blakely for stepping in for me in last week's Macrodose. If you haven't yet listened to that episode, Grace provides critical insights into the crisis we currently face in our NHS and analysis of some deeper roots that got us into this point. I also wanted to take this opportunity to point people towards our Macrodose Patreon. We recently had a great interview with Cecilia Rickap, who is a lecturer in international political economy at City University in London. We discussed her challenges to some recent accounts by economists like Cedric Duran and Yanis Varoufakis, who argue that we are moving out of capitalism altogether and into something they call techno-feudalism. That chat is available now for patrons, and we'll be bringing you more in-depth discussions with some of the brightest minds from the world of economics every fortnight over the coming months. If you enjoy Macrodose and would like to support our work, please consider becoming a Macrodose Patreon today. You can find us at patreon.com slash macrodose. That's patreon.com slash macrodose. Time for our first story this week. I wanted to begin today's show by picking up another story in the scientific journal Nature Sustainability, which I've used a few times to write stories for macrodose and is providing some of the best analysis on the interconnections between today's economic crisis and the collapse of our environmental and ecological systems. Last week, they published some new research which suggests we may be seriously underestimating the possibility of, quote, ecosystem collapse in the next few decades. The world's ecosystems are already changing rapidly. Rainforests are being turned into savannah. Savannah is turning into desert. Arctic tundra is thawing out, and of course the polar ice caps are melting. What the research indicates, using computer models of global and some major regional ecosystems, is that this combination of multiple existing ecological stresses are all working together to make the collapse of ecosystems far more likely and it dates much closer to us than has previously been predicted. It's the combination of factors that makes a difference. We often reduce the ecological crisis to only climate change, but as I keep reiterating here, it's also the damaging biodiversity losses, the resource overuse, and all the other anthropogenic pollutants out there. Once these additional factors are accounted for, those ecosystem models go haywire. Systems that were previously expected to collapse in the 2090s from a single factor, like rising temperatures, will, in the worst-case scenario, fall apart as early as the 2030s. This shows the importance of taking a holistic view of these changes, understanding each of these stresses together, rather than as just individual issues. And as the authors of this new report say, these collapses are essentially irreversible events. Pushing an ecosystem beyond the, quote, tipping point is not something that can be patched up, Once the system has gone, it's gone. And once you have multiple collapses happening, the interactions between them also start to pull the wider system into chaos. This will be a point of no return for the planet and for all of us who have to live here, an irreversible breach in human and natural history. If all of this wasn't pleasant enough, there's a growing case for saying some of these tipping points may already have been breached. 
We have already passed into a new period in the Earth's history as a result of human activity, which geologists refer to as the Anthropocene. Rapid climate change is the best-known element in this new geological period, but massive biodiversity loss in what is likely to be the world's sixth known mass extinction event is another major element. Worsening chaos and instability are not some passing crisis, but a fundamental reality for all of us from this point onwards. It's an extremely bleak picture, but it's not one that conventional economic thinking takes much account of, or even is able to take much account of. The conventional economic models of climate change, the integrated assessment models as they're known, are built around the fundamental idea that everything is reversible in some sense, or at the very least some sum of money could be paid to compensate for the loss of something else. That is combined with a doctrinal belief in the power of technological progress. The process of invention and technological change will eventually come up with radically better ways of securing economic growth. So you can see this most obviously in the main forecasting models for net zero, the ones that get used for international agreements, which include an incredibly efficient negative emissions technology that can magically remove carbon from the atmosphere. Such a technology or technologies doesn't yet actually exist. Dealing with climate change in this worldview, this is the worldview of mainstream economics, becomes an issue only of trade-offs. How much expense and growth do we sacrifice today given our forecasts of damage from climate change tomorrow? But if tipping points are real, and they seem to be, and ecological damage is irreversible, the basis of this form of economic thinking is essentially destroyed. There is no trade-off possible when something has been irreversibly lost. You can't trade off an extinct species or a collapsed ecosystem. They're gone. Instead of thinking about essentially marginal changes to the system, you need to think about big, fundamental shifts in how the economy is organised, not only to reduce future harm as far as possible, to build a world where the very real costs and misery of future ecosystem collapse and ecological instability is fairly managed, protecting people as far as possible. At present, we are sort of doing the first, with various agreements on reducing greenhouse gas emissions globally, but we are barely scratching the surface of the second. As we mentioned last week, the real and serious crisis of adaptation is not being mentioned in the mainstream discussions of the economic crisis. To pick just the British example, the Bank of England here continues to keep jamming up interest rates when confronted with ecological shock inflation, pushing the costs onto everyday people instead of facing up to the real issues and the new economic and ecological reality. The British Labour Party is another illustration of the problem. Labour's original plans for big environmental investment were for a world of low interest rates and inflation. But if they want to get serious about climate change now, they need to talk about redistribution and adaptation. As Grace talked about in Macrodose last week, we need massive investments and substantial tax reform to equip or at least partially insulate our economies from the worst impacts of ecosystem collapse. And as Labour seemingly won't do that, they're steadily working their way through abandoning every commitment they've made thus far, big or small, under the auspices of their infamous fiscal rules, and are unable to adapt their thinking to these new realities. We are left with institutions that were drawn up and created in a world where climate change was not a direct and pressing global issue. It was a threat for the future, only making its presence felt at the edges, harsh on small island states, for example, but for the developed world, something that could be largely ignored. Now, the ecological collapse is here and getting worse with every passing day. And existing strategies built around state investment and technology-led decarbonisation are already under strain. So this is a new world. If our institutions don't catch up soon, it'll be the rest of us that are left to suffer with permanently higher inflation and the doom loop of higher interest rates as the accompaniment to wider ecological collapse. 
Prime Minister Keir Starmer, if that's where we're headed, might find he has more than tree-huggers to worry about if Labour doesn't get his act together. OK, and on that merry note, time for our second and final story this week. As always, it's a listener question. This time it's from Teresa, who emailed into the show to say, I am frustrated by the way that politicians, sadly on the left as well as on the right, think that economic growth is the best or only model to support the development of fair and affluent societies through taxation, etc. Surely resources on this planet are finite and the economy cannot carry on growing forever. Despite the degradation of the planet and our environment leading to the climate emergency, very little coverage is given to non-growth economic models. I recently read about donut economics. It would be really great if you could explain how economic models that don't depend on growth would work. Are there others apart from donut economics? Are these models viable and how can we put pressure on politicians to consider them? So this is an excellent question and thank you very much for asking it, Teresa. People might have seen that when Keir Starmer was confronted by some very polite Green New Deal protesters at a speech last week, his immediate response to them, asking where the Labour Party stood in climate change investment, was to say, we are on the side of economic growth. In the Sunday Times over last weekend, a series of leaks made the same point, that Labour sources want the party to focus on growth and jobs rather than, quote, tree-hugging. Elsewhere, Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves has threatened to make any additional spending on public services conditional on the economy growing, apparently forgetting the fairly basic point that failing to invest in those public services is one of the reasons growth today is so weak in Britain. But the issue is much bigger. The idea of economic growth is fundamental to the type of politics and political economy Labour and other similar parties are representative of. Labour, like socialist and social democratic parties across Europe, can trace its foundations to the period at the end of the 19th century and earlier 20th century, when industrial capitalism had outgrown the severe instability of its early years and had started to produce pretty reliable, broad-based increases in output that today is what we would call economic growth. That, in turn, meant at least a section of the working class could see improved living standards and some basic reforms offered, mass education, some healthcare, even a rudimentary welfare state. The key to this was the way in which economic growth soothed the otherwise very raw conflicts of capitalism. If the economic pie is bigger next year than this, it doesn't matter quite so much how unfair the division of the pie is. Your slice, as the working class, may well be proportionately less than that taken by capitalists, but it's still bigger than it was. We discussed a really graphic demonstration of this on the podcast a few weeks ago, examining how, over the last 40 years in China, economic growth has been extraordinarily high and sustained, but inequality has gone through the roof. Because economic growth has been so impressive, basically pretty well everyone can either get or expect to get an improvement in their standard of living, even if those at the top are taking vastly more of what is available. In other words, economic growth is a way to make reformism under capitalism possible. Instead of everything being a life-or-death struggle with whatever one side gains, the other side loses, a form of conflict known in economics as a zero-sum game, one side can gain a little, the other side can gain a lot, and still everyone is better off. So when Labour politicians today appeal to economic growth, they're doing something very much part of the party's DNA. Growth is what has made the Labour Party, or the German SPD, or the Swedish Labour Party, or whoever, actually possible. 
particularly after the end of the Second World War, when measures of economic growth became more widely used and growth itself, especially in Western Europe, was dramatic and sustained, the promotion of economic growth came to be used deliberately as a way to avoid talking about class conflict or redistribution. Labour MP Tony Crosland's book, The Future of Socialism, which came out in the mid-1950s, is probably the clearest statement of the case. Crosland argued that parties like Labour should focus less on redistribution and ownership and more on how to promote growth. This is what made Starmer's reply so telling, when he immediately leapt to a defence of economic growth against demands for more state intervention, he was reaching, presumably unconsciously, into a very long Labour and social democratic tradition. It was the same when, over last weekend, the anonymous sources close to Starmer were busily briefing against the Labour Party's own environmental policies in the name of growth. Now, there's a relatively soft answer to this, which is to claim, as some do, that green growth is possible, that in fact extra investment in decarbonisation will produce growth as well as being good for the environment. In the short run, this is probably true. Were Labour to actually invest its £28 billion in the Green Prosperity Plan, it would almost certainly add to measured GDP growth, given the deep inefficiencies and underused resources of the British economy. It would create more and better paid jobs, for instance, retrofitting houses across the country, which in turn would spark more spending in lots of different areas and start to pull overall growth up. But as Theresa says, this process must have some limits. Producing more requires more physical stuff, materials and energy. So we talked last week about how the demand for minerals needed to decarbonise the economy is pushing ecologically disastrous deep-sea mining. Demand for copper needed for wiring is already causing shortages. Meanwhile, even things that seem quite dematerialised, existing in the digital world, have huge energy demands. Data centres, the backbone of the internet, currently use 3% of the world's electricity supply, and this is expected to grow hugely over the coming years. The typical answer to this from economists and the real techno-optimists is that the miracle of growth for the last 150 years depends on inventing new knowledge more than it depends on hard physical inputs. This would mean that even if the economy was still growing, we would get better and better at inventing new things, becoming more and more efficient in our resource use. And so the physical limits to growth wouldn't actually exist. In terms of environmental damage, this is what gets called decoupling. The idea that each unit of GDP added to the economy by growth produces less damage, lower CO2 emissions and so on, over time as technology improves. There is some evidence that for some countries this has been possible for a while. Britain is actually one of them, even allowing for the fact that we've exported a lot of our pollution to places like China, asking them to make goods that we no longer make ourselves and taking on the pollution. But as a projection for the future, I don't think it's plausible that this will continue at the pace needed for three reasons. The first is a bit technical and relates to a brilliant paper by the French economist Thomas Philippon, published last year, which showed that growth over the last 150 years or so was not as dramatic as economists tended to think, and therefore was unlikely to be as dramatic into the future. Essentially, we've consistently overestimated our prospects for future growth. The second reason is that much of the technological investment taking place today is going into technologies that are chronically bad at actually producing growth. So in the last 20 years, global internet traffic has grown from 156 gigabytes transferred every second in 2002 to 150,000 gigabytes a second today, which is a thousand times larger. But the world economy has grown, as measured by GDP, 
and in constant $2010, from $52 trillion in 2002 to $82 trillion in 2020, just over one and a half times larger. Growth in computing capacity is massively larger than growth in the whole economy. As we discussed in an episode of Macrodose Extra with Professor Richard Jones a few weeks ago, there are now also some hard physical limits to what existing computer technologies can do, so growth in the future is likely to be even weaker. And the final reason is the one Theresa picks up on, which is that there are limits to what can be sustained here. Whilst we have seen dramatic improvements in technology, improving the efficiency of things like wind turbines and solar panels, these technologies themselves have heavy resource demands, as just mentioned. And because of the consequences of past pollution, the future is going to be much more unstable. We will just live through the hottest week on record. Ecological instability, as the world warms and essential systems fail, will increasingly become a barrier to meaningful growth. The solutions here are to think very differently about how to organise an economy. Whilst growth using new clean technologies and limiting harms is clearly desirable and necessary across the poorer countries of the global south, in the rich world, the real questions are around redistribution to reduce inequality and how to live meaningful lives with minimal ecological harm attached. I think it's terrible framing, but the degrowth movement is often spot on here. We need to reduce working time, increase our investment in low-carbon activities like care work, and support a far bigger range of public activities, from festivals to public spaces like libraries and parks. So it's not just donut economics that's providing ideas of how we can live sustainably, or at least live adequately amidst ecological collapse. There are a whole host of those ideas out there, with various different movements supporting them. I would definitely check out Planet B's Everything Must Change podcast on Navara Media, which came out around COP back in 2021. Or else you can read Half-Earth Socialism, for instance, for an interesting and challenging, if not always entirely one I'd agree with, take on this. There are problems with all these analyses, I'm sure, but what we need is new ideas and radical solutions to the interconnected crises we face. As for pressuring politicians... That has to happen outside of Westminster, in the media, on the streets, by writing to your MP and by making noise in the ways that you see fit. So thank you for your wonderful question, Teresa, and I hope that provides some answers for you. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.